Well, we are continuing this morning with our study through the book of Acts. We are in chapter 23. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 12 through 35. Uh, these verses find Paul in Jerusalem, and they find Paul in a time of trouble. He's been in trouble for a while in Jerusalem. He actually ended up going to Jerusalem after completing his third missionary journey. And as, as, he, was, as he and his mission team were making that journey to Jerusalem, they visit with believers in various cities along the way. A number from these churches had prophetic words for Paul, uh, warning him about what was going to happen when he got to Jerusalem, warning him of trials and afflictions and bondage that he would have to deal with. And so as these warnings were given, the believers in these various churches would just plead with Paul, don't go. Don't go to Jerusalem. I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be bad. We don't want you to go. You could even be killed. Well, Paul was very moved by their concern, but he was convinced the Lord was leading him to go and that these prophecies were just really to help him prepare and even the churches and, uh, to prepare for what was getting ready to take place. Well, the believers uh, submitted their personal desires to the Lord. They confessed the Lord's will be done. So even though they couldn't understand it, even though it was not what they wanted to see happen, they knew that God's sovereign will in the matter was better than their personal desires. So they submitted to his will. Paul himself confessed that suffering or being arrested or even being killed really was not his primary concern because his whole life was organized around the goal of pleasing the Lord. And that was what he was going to do. He was going to live as a disciple of Christ, as an apostle of Christ, regardless of the circumstances and uh, how, even how difficult they might become. Well, when he got to Jerusalem, uh, meeting with the elders of the Jerusalem church, they began to, he began to see even more clearly uh, what the problem was that they were facing. Many of the Jews were putting their faith in Jesus, believing that he was the promised Christ, but they were still continuing to practice the ceremonial laws. The temple was still standing, of course, in Jerusalem at that time. And so they were still participating in things like offering sacrifices, circumcising their sons, observing the feast, participating in purification rites, things of that sort. Well, these things all pointed, they were all foreshadowing the coming of the Messiah. So when the Messiah came, all of those things had been fulfilled, had fulfilled their purpose. But Jews were still observing them, uh, even the Christians. And these Jewish Christians were under the impression that Paul was telling the Jews in the Roman Empire, scattered throughout the Roman Empire, not to observe these ceremonial laws any longer. Well, that's not what he was doing. What he was doing was making it clear that these things were all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that's where their focus needed to be. Uh, he would make it clear that they were saved through faith in Christ, not by keeping any sort of law. But Paul did not forbid the Jews from observing those ceremonial laws. Well, to address this misunderstanding, Paul agreed to participate in a purification rite that, uh, that was in the temple there in Jerusalem, along with four men from the Jerusalem church. So while in the temple, there were some Jews from Asia, Jews who had not believed in Jesus as the Christ, they were from Asia and were in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And they recognized Paul. They knew Paul because Paul had been very effective in sharing the gospel in the province of Asia, especially in Ephesus, which actually had, uh, had influence in, in all, uh, all the area around it. So he was well known, and they were, he was recognizable. Well, they accused Paul of speaking against the Jewish people, of speaking against the law of Moses, of speaking against the temple, and they started a riot. The intention of the riot was to beat up Paul, really to the point, really ultimately they wanted to kill Paul. That's what, they're, what they were trying to do. Well, the Roman commander realized what was going on. He intervened. He brought in, 12, uh, brought in 200 soldiers and was able to rescue Paul from the mob, carrying him, trying to keep him out of their reach. Well, Paul then asked permission, uh, once he was safely there at the barracks, at the step leading to the barracks of the, where the soldiers were, he asked for permission to speak to these people who had just done their best to try to kill him. But he wanted to talk with them, and so he did speak with them. And he, wanted to make, he was talking about his relationship with Jesus Christ, 
but he was doing it very much in the context of his Jewishness. He spoke to them in Hebrew. Uh, he spoke of the fact that he was born a Jew, that he actually was raised in Jerusalem uh, under the teaching of Gamaliel, who was the best-known teacher of the day. And actually he talked about how he was on his way to Damascus. And he was on his way to Damascus. He had just gotten papers from the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious council, to actually take all those Jews who, had, who were believing that Jesus was the Christ and bring them back to Jerusalem to stand trial. Along his way, Jesus Christ appeared to him, intervened, and uh, revealed himself to Paul. Paul put his faith in Jesus Christ. He was blinded, and so he was continued to be led to Damascus, and there he met Ananias, who was a Jewish Christian in Damascus, was used by God. God used this Jewish Christian to confirm to Paul that he had been called as an apostle of Christ. And then he spoke of a time three years after that when he was in the temple in Jerusalem once again. And Jesus appeared to him personally and told him to go to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, with the gospel. Well, the Jews who were hearing this got very angry when he said that. And they once again began to threaten Paul, saying, A man like this should not even be allowed to live. Well, the Roman commander could not understand really what the problem was. He was about to scourge Paul to really torture him, uh, to find to get him to tell what was going on. Well, Paul informed him that he was a Roman citizen. It was against the law to scourge a Roman citizen. So the commander called together the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, to meet with Paul the next day and try to find out from there what the issue was. Well, the next day Paul did meet with the, with the Sanhedrin. He told them, he had a clear conscience before God for all that he had done, all that he had done in believing that Jesus was the Christ, all that he had done in preaching him to Jews and Gentiles alike. He had a clear conscience that he was doing the right thing. Well, the high priest had him struck in the mouth because of making that statement. Paul then prophesied that the Lord was going to strike down this high priest for his sinful hypocrisy, and we know that a few years later he did do that. Paul also told the Sanhedrin that he was on trial really for his belief in the resurrection. Well, this caused an uproar among them because those who were Pharisees agreed that there was such a thing as a resurrection. Those who were the Sadducees said, no, there is no such thing as that. So they began arguing and things got out of hand once again. And the Roman commander again had to rescue Paul as things became dangerous for Paul there. Well, that night... The Lord Jesus Christ appeared to Paul personally again and encouraged him. He had pleased the Lord with his courageous witness for the Christ in Jerusalem. And the Lord promised, he said, you're going to be able to witness for me in Rome as well. Well, that brings us to where we are this morning in this story. So we're going to pick up at Acts 23, 11, when Jesus uh, appeared to Paul. And we're going to lead, read through uh, the rest of the chapter. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause in Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who formed this plot. They came to the chief priest and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, the council, notify the commander to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation. And we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. But the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul told one of the centurions, called him and said, Lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you since he has something to tell you. The commander took him by a hand and stepping aside began to inquire of him privately, What is it that you have to report to me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to bring you to before, 
to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. So do not listen to them. For more than 40 of them are lying in wait for him who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him. And now they were ready and waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man go, instructing him, Tell no one that you have notified me of these things. And he called to him two of the centurions and said, Get two hundred soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen. They were also to provide mounts to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter having this form. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up to them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. And I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there would be a plot against the man, I, once, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. So the soldiers, in accordance with their orders, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. But the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with him, they returned to the barracks. When these had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to, to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. When he had read it, he asked from what province he was from, and he learned he was from Cilicia. And he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. So Paul's life continues to be threatened by the Jews. But once again, he's rescued. Now I want to use this passage to help us think about the doctrine of providence. We read about this earlier in our service. But, and really, anytime you are talking about the subject of history, you are talking about God's providence. But there are some interesting features in this particular historical narrative that I think are especially worth looking into. So first, on your outline, point number one, let's consider the doctrine of God's providence. What do we mean by that? In my opinion, this is really one of the most comforting and helpful doctrines of the Christian faith. It reminds us that our God reigns. I mean, that changes your perspective on everything. It, many do not want God to reign and are upset with the idea that he could be reigning. But the scripture tells us that he does reign. Things are not continuing by chance and random processes and so forth. We have a God who is reigning over all things. There's a comfort to me in that versus looking at things being random and just by chance. The fact that there's a God providentially ruling over all to me is a comforting thing. At the same time, I have to admit, there's much about God that I do not understand. Uh, I mean, I thank the Lord for the glorious things that he's revealed in his word. But we're talking about a God who is eternal. I mean, we can't even understand that word. We can define it, but you can't visualize it. He's infinite. You can't visualize that either. I mean, he is perfectly wise. There is not a single hole in anything of, Paul's, of, of God's knowledge and wisdom. Perfect, absolute perfect knowledge. And so there's much we can understand, but at the same time, he's so far beyond us. There's also a lot I don't understand about the ways of God. There's things I do understand because the scripture has revealed it to us, but once again, there is so much that's beyond us that we don't fully understand every detail about why he does what he does. But we trust him. Those who know his name can put their trust in him. He is the one who is perfectly good. You can trust someone who is good. He is one who is perfectly wise. You can trust someone who is perfectly wise. He is all-powerful so that he can put those good and wise plans into and make those reality. He's a God who can be trusted. 
As we talk about God's providence, I'm going to use a number of things that I've read in a, a book that John Piper wrote on providence and also a book that John Flavel wrote on providence. I found both of those to be helpful. First on your outline is the definition from Piper's book on providence, and here's what it says. In reference to God, the noun providence has come to mean the act of purposefully, purposefully providing for or sustaining and governing the world. So providence does not merely tell us that God reigns over all things. It doesn't just tell us that he sits in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. It doesn't just tell us that his sovereignty rules over all. It does tell us those things. Those are biblical quotations. So those things are true. But the key word in this definition is that God's providence is purposeful. God not only has the power to do all that he chooses, but he uses that power in purposeful, meaningful ways. There's a design. There is a goal for what God providentially brings about. Ultimately, that design is all focused on the glory of God. In Isaiah 46, verse 10, the Lord says, My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. I will accomplish all my purpose. So as Piper points out, God is not a passive observer to things that take place in the world. He's not just watching. He sees that his purposes are carried out and accomplished. He's active. All that he does is purposeful. Well, part of what God does in providence is sustain the world, keeping things going, everything. There is nothing that escapes God's providential sustaining of the world. That's the reason you and I are breathing this morning is because of God's providence. The definition of providence given by the Heidelberg Catechism, which was written in 1563, to me is really helpful here. Here's what it says. The providence of God is the almighty, everywhere present power of God. It's the almighty, everywhere present power of God. Whereby, as it were by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures. And he so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. I love that phrase. Providence is God's almighty, everywhere present power. That's what it is. That is something that we should be conscious of on a regular basis. I mean, how could that not be helpful to us to know that? But notice it's not merely that God's power is everywhere present. It is purposeful. That definition gives several everyday just kind of practical examples of God's providence. His providence ensures the upholding of the heavens. Everything in every everything in the heavens. Everything in space, as far as the heavens and the highest heavens, he upholds it all and keeps it there and keeps it going. He upholds everything related to this earth, keeping it going as it should. And then it gets detail. He also talks about creatures, by the way, which we are in that category, but also your, your pets, I mean, the animals at the zoo, wherever, you know, the, the insects in your garden. Every aspect of that are things that are under his providential care. It says he upholds and governs herbs and grass. He upholds the rain and the drought. He determines the provision of meat and drink. So whatever you had for breakfast this morning was because of God's providential care for you. Whatever you have for lunch, same thing. God's providential care has to do with even what we have for our meals. His providential care moves to those who are rich, those who are poor. In other words, there's not a single thing left to chance. God's providence rules over all. Now, Piper also in his book quotes a part of a Charles Spurgeon sermon on this subject, which I think you might find interesting, maybe even challenging. Here's what he says. He says, I believe 
that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the suns in the heaven. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered just like the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar tree is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. That's kind of remarkable to think about. And it's pretty overwhelming to think about. But once again, it's something we should think about on a regular basis during the day. Our lives are very literally in his hands. Would you rather have chance randomness or God's purposeful providence? If you, even if you don't want God's purposeful providence, you have it anyway because it's reality. Now, there are special promises for believers in regard to God's providence. Stated very clearly in uh, the well-known passage, Romans 8, 28, uh, we, <clears throat> we know that God causes all things to work together for good, all things to work together for good, to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Just a glorious promise. Well, here's how John Flavel addressed that truth. Again, on your outline. Indeed, providence neither does nor can do anything that is really against the true interest and good of the saints. For what are the works of providence but the execution of God's decree and the fulfilling of his word? So the doctrine of providence does not deny that bad things happen. It doesn't deny that people get sick, that people lose their jobs, that civil magistrates oftentimes govern in unjust ways, that worldly philosophies often seem to get the upper, upper hand. It doesn't deny that Christians are sometimes marginalized and persecuted because of their faith. Sin is in the world. But we also see example after example in the scriptures of God using hard times, even using wicked men, to accomplish his purposes in the earth, especially among those who, who are believers. In fact, Flavel says that God's providence cannot do anything that is ultimately not in the true interest of the good of the saints. Again, that's something to keep in mind on a regular basis. That truth really should find its way into our prayers as well. Okay, with those thoughts in mind, some of these things on the doctrine of providence, let's look back at Acts 23. The day after the uproar in Paul's meeting with the Sanhedrin, <clears throat> of course, something really bad happened. Now, let me remind you, bad stuff has been happening to Paul pretty much ever since he got to Jerusalem. The prophecies of all those believers who warned Paul ahead of time were proven to be true and accurate. But we see in verses 12 to 15 that there were over 40 Jews who got together and formed a conspiracy against Paul. They put themselves under a curse. In other words, they were serious. They put themselves under a curse that they would not eat or drink anything until they had killed Paul. They went to the chief priests, the elders uh, of the Sanhedrin, to get them in on this evil plan. They were going to tell the Roman commander that they wanted to further question Paul, and while he was on the way, they were going to kill Paul. Every indication is that the Jewish religious leaders were fully on board with this plan. So I want us to look at God's providence in light of bad things that we have to deal with as Christians. There are several things in these verses that help us see some of those challenges. So our second main point is this. Believers have multiple enemies. Believers have multiple enemies that must be addressed in walking out the Christian life. I mean, it's obvious from these verses that Paul had some strong, serious enemies they were serious about bringing an end to his life, bringing an end to his ministry. You and I have serious enemies as well. I want to mention three that I think you can, we can see uh, illustrated here in this passage. The first one is this. False teaching 
false teaching within the organized church is an enemy believers have to face. One of the things that's especially disturbing about this story is the involvement of people who would no doubt describe themselves as believers in God, even zealous for God, they would probably say. But in reality, they were completely deceived. It's surprising how quickly a murderous conspiracy that involved more than 40 Jews was able to be organized so fast. The very next morning after the meeting with the Sanhedrin, Micah chapter 2 verse 1 says, Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do it, for it's in the power of their hands. Well, the mob outside the, uh, outside the temple had failed to kill Paul. Roman commander rescued him. His trial before the Sanhedrin had failed to condemn Paul to death. Once again, he was rescued by the Roman commander. So now wicked men schemed on their beds about how they can now kill him. They were so full of hatred for Jesus Christ and for the message of salvation to both Jews and Greeks that their hatred drove them to murder. Hatred and murder go hand in hand. Many of them were probably part of the mob that tried to kill Paul earlier and had failed. The Jews were the people of God, but they had rejected the Messiah that he had sent, had promised them and sent them in Jesus. Now they were desperate to get rid of one of his apostles, the one who was leading the the outreach to non-Jewish people. That's bad. But what's worse is that they were easily able to convince their religious leaders to join them in this conspiracy. They truly were, you might remember from last week, Paul called them whitewashed walls. What he meant was, They looked good and clean and proper on the outside, but when you got past that appearance, everything was just awful, filthy, sinful, bad. Well, that's obviously really, he was right. And so as a result of that being the case, they had no problem with the plan to set up Paul to be ambushed and murdered. This is a picture for us of the false teaching that does exist within organized church. You're going to remember um, that, that Paul warned the Ephesian elders when he was beginning his trip back to Jerusalem about this very issue. It's back in just a couple chapters back. It's in Acts chapter 20. I want to read verses 20, or chapter 20, verses 28 to 30. Paul says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Now, Paul makes it clear that Christ loves his church dearly. He said it's the church of God. It's purchased by the very blood of God, the Son of God. But that does not protect them from being attacked by false teachers. It was a problem in Paul's day, but has been a problem really all through church history, including the present. It's surprising and just so heartbreaking to me the number number of things that we see in Especially some of the uh, some of the mainline churches, you'll find you'll you'll hear many who no longer really consider the scriptures being inspired by God, and so as a result of that, there's other things that begin to fall away. People that no longer believe that Jesus, when he died on the cross, was truly atoning for sin, they would rather it seem just being a good example for us instead of actually atoning for sin. Uh, you'll hear many who will say, "Well." There are more ways to be right with God instead of just putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Anybody who is sincere is going to be fine, and all religions lead to the same place and so forth. Those things are false teaching. And it's a problem that Christians have to be aware of and have to navigate through. And unfortunately, it has caused many to be deceived in their own faith, others who have completely turned their back on their faith as, as, they, as these false teachings have had an effect. Well, not only did Paul have to face this enemy, so do we. 
Well, there's also a second one here. Personal struggles with sin and temptation. Personal struggles with sin and temptation our enemies, believers, have to face. In verse 11, uh, we see that on the night after having to be rescued from the meeting with the Sanhedrin, Jesus once again came personally to Paul. So his last couple days in Jerusalem had been quite challenging, even violent. How was Paul dealing with these issues? Was he dealing with fear? I wonder if he could be anxious at all. Could he be discouraged? He had great hopes in coming to Jerusalem. He knew it was going to be bad, but surely there's going to be some things accomplished. I mean, Paul was a man. It would be natural to deal with those kind of temptations and maybe others. We see that he did courageously stand for Christ, but that doesn't mean he wasn't tempted to let fear take over. We don't know exactly what was going on in his mind and his heart, but it's interesting that Jesus deemed it necessary to personally stand by Paul's side and speak to him. It's as if he needed that personal encouragement for what he was dealing with. He needed to be reminded that Christ was with him through all of his trials. He needed to know that, just like we need to know that. Every one of us deal with sin and temptation and personal weakness every day. I mean, it's a problem that we will never get away from in this life. The temptations may change according to your seasons in life, but they're always still there. In Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about the battle that he really and all of us have with sin, and he speaks of the issue of sin several different ways in that chapter, and really all through the book of Romans. He talks about the law of sin He talks about this body of death. He talks about the sinful nature or the flesh. He talks about sin living in me. He talks about the law of sin and death. In other words, this is a big deal. This is a truly big deal that we all have to deal with. Paul has something of a summary statement in Romans 7.21. Let me read you what that verse is. And it's things that he had discovered personally within his own life. Romans 7.21 says this. I find then the principle or the law that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. That's a very simple statement. But I want to give you four observations connected with this particular verse. They come from Chris Lungar's book, and this Chris Lungar's book is actually a summary of things that John Owen wrote. So it's not something that's original for me, but I think it's really helpful. He says, first thing you can see in this is that sin living in us is like a law or like a principle. It may be more along the line of like the principle of or the reality of gravity that is continuing at work. It continues to work. It's always at work to seek to bend us to its will. That's what, so sin is always that principle within every single one of us to continue to seek us to bend us to whatever sin wants us to do. Second thing, we find this particular law of sin inside us. It's there. It's inside every one of us. Yes, there's bad stuff outside, but there's bad stuff inside. I mean, as believers, the Lord has made it clear to us that we have a big problem with sin. Oftentimes, people who are not Christians don't even recognize that problem. But thankfully, he's at least shown us that. We recognize it. It's there. So that law is inside of us. The third thing from that verse, we find this law when we are at our best. Paul said, that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. So what he said was, as the more intent he was on serving the Lord, the more intent he was on seeking to glorify God in his life, the more sin would raise its head while he was in the process of doing what was good and righteous and holy. Sin is there to either keep us from doing those good things, those God-honoring things, or maybe to contaminate those good works so they don't come out really what they, like they should. Sin is always at work, especially when we're trying to do the right thing. And then fourth, 
This law of sin never rests. Sin never takes a vacation. Sin doesn't go to sleep at night when you do. Sin doesn't take a nap. Sin doesn't get out of the way when you're seeking to please God. It's always, always, always there. That is one of the strongest enemies that we have in our life. And it's inside of each one of us. And just realizing that truth is a major step in winning the battle. Because if you don't realize that, you don't know where to fight. So just realizing that is a major step. It's a reminder to us as Christians the need to constantly live our lives in dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ. We are always people who need help. Jesus tells us to abide in him, and he was the one who will give us that help. So that's one of our enemies, that enemy with sin that we have to deal with, just like Paul had to deal with it. The third enemy that's illustrated in this passage is this, hostile threats. Hostile threats from the world are enemies that believers must face. The men who conspired against Paul were Jewish. Again, they certainly had a belief in God, but it's also true to call them unbelievers because they had rejected the truth that Jesus was the promised Christ. They simply would not believe that he was the one who had been clearly promised in the Old Testament prophecies. So they actively resisted and attacked the man who was proclaiming Jesus as the Christ. They conspired with the Sanhedrin to have him killed. They were so intent on this evil plan that they swore by an oath to taste nothing until they had killed Paul. And the evil of this plan was so significant that Luke repeats it actually four times to make sure we realize this is what really happened. In verses 12 to 15, just when it's talking about it, talks about that it came to them, and then it talks about they, 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 they told the, they told the um, Sanhedrin. Twice it's mentioned there. And then whenever, um, whenever Paul's nephew is talking to the Roman commander, once again, Luke lays out for us, reminds us what that evil plan was. And then whenever the commander was writing his letter to uh, the governor Felix, Again, it's mentioned there. So four different times, Luke makes sure that that finds its way in this, into this narrative. He wants us to see they were conspiring. These religious people were conspiring to kill Paul. They really were doing they had And they had pled, uh, pledged themselves. under. They were, actually, they were actually calling condemnation on themselves, putting themselves under a curse if they did not succeed. Well, you read the story. They don't succeed. So people wonder what happened to him. Well, we never hear from him again. But I did read that there was a way where, where the, uh, the chief priest could say, okay, we absolve you of that. Of that uh, stupid thing you did. Um, so apparently they were able to get rid of it, get out of it. But so Luke is ex- emphasizing that Paul was in extreme danger uh, because of his Christian faith. Well, hostile threats against Christians are common all over the world. There are many nations in which persecution against Christians is extremely common. The two that are probably at the top of the list at this point are probably North Korea and Afghanistan. But then, but the, and it's just, just extremely dangerous to be a Christian in any of those, of those nations. But then you start going down the list, Somalia, Libya, Yemen, Eritrea, Nigeria, Pakistan, you could list dozens and dozens of nations where there is active persecution against Christians. Where they are, where it's in some of those places, it's a crime to be a Christian. It's a crime to share the gospel with another person. People are killed, people are beaten, they're put in prison, they lose their homes, they lose their jobs, all because of their faith. We still have religious freedom, thank God, in our nation. But we are at the place where being a Christian is often looked down on by many people in our nation. So we see at least three examples here in Acts 23 of enemies that Christians have to deal with in our lives. Well, God in his providence 
often allows people to act on the evil inclinations of their hearts. But he's also regularly providentially intervening on behalf of his children. He clearly did that for Paul. So, our third main point is this. In light of the reality of God's providential care and the enemies believers face, Christians must press on with faith and obedience. Press on in faith and obedience. So with all the serious and hostile challenges that Paul was facing, this is not a discouraging passage. It's encouraging. This is an encouraging scripture for people, for believers. Paul was encouraged to press on as a Christian, as an apostle, because it was very clear that the Lord was with him and taking care of him. Now, there's at least two things I think that we can learn to help us press on. First one is this. Believers must hold firmly to the truths of God's word. In spite of the challenges they face, hold firmly to the truths of God's word. For this one, we go back to uh, that key verse, verse 11. As we've noted, the reality for Paul was that his life had been seriously threatened by both the mob and by the Sanhedrin. And as we see in the following verses after verse 11, the threat gets worse. It didn't go away. Again, here's what it says in verse 11. On the night immediately following, the Lord stood at Paul's side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause in Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. So in light of the potential struggles with fear or anxiety of discouragement, Jesus Christ stands at Paul's side the night after the confrontation with the Sanhedrin. In light of the unbelief and false teaching that was rampant among the Jewish people and their leaders, Jesus stands beside Paul and gives him a word. In light of the hostile threats that he had and would continue to face, the Lord stood beside Paul and spoke to him. He exhorted him to take courage. We know that the Christian of all people needs courage to face the enemies of our faith. Paul had been courageous in addressing the mob and the Sanhedrin. And the Lord encourages him in this. Paul had been faithful to witness to the cause of Christ in spite of the threats against him. And Christ encourages him in this. And the Lord gives him a promise. He promises Paul that he will have the opportunity, just in the same way he was able to be a witness in Jerusalem, he's going to have an opportunity to witness for the cause of Christ in Rome as well, the complete opposite side of the Roman Empire. That's something Paul very much wanted to do. So that means that the Lord is promising Paul that whatever obstacles lay in his path in the future, and there's a bunch Whatever obstacles lay in his path, the Lord is going to get him through every obstacle to get him to Rome. So Paul was able to hold firm to that word of Christ no matter what he might face in those coming days and even coming years. I'm sure this, this clear word from the Lord was something that Paul held to very closely. Now, Paul was an apostle. So he had the unique privilege of being taught directly and in person by the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have that same privilege. But what we do have is a record of what the Lord spoke to all of his apostles and prophets. We have the scriptures. Those scriptures are just as true and just as certain as the word that Jesus Christ spoke personally to Paul. And it's these truths from the word of God that we have to hold on to. Some of my favorites that, I, that just come to my mind on a regular basis, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You all know that verse. One we just read. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Got to be reminded of that on a regular basis. Another one. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. What an amazing promise. And we need it every day. 
Another one, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you're not your own? Therefore, you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. If we're going to press on in the face of spiritual enemies, we are going to have to hold firm to the truths of God's word. Second and final point here. Believers should make use of the means, the means that God providentially provides for them. Now, this is really what Acts 23, 16 to 35 is all about. (laughs) So we're going to sum it up here under one main point. Somehow, God providentially placed Paul's nephew, never heard of him before, never heard he had a sister, never heard of him before, and never hear of him after. But somehow, God providentially placed Paul's nephew in position to overhear the plot of the 40 men and the agreement with the Sanhedrin. I'm sure that that was years in the making for Paul's nephew to happen to be right at the right place at the right time. That's God's providence. Somehow, Paul's nephew, we're not told how, was allowed into the barracks where Paul was being held. He told Paul what he had heard. Paul took him to a centurion who took him to the ultimate commander to hear the story. The commander believed that the threat was real, and he made plans to remove Paul from Jerusalem, 70 miles west to Caesarea. In verse 23, we see he employed 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and another 200 spearmen. The number of soldiers, that's a lot for one guy, the number of soldiers shows us probably a couple of things, that the commander considered Paul to be a pretty important prisoner, probably. But what it might say even more is that it's evidence that the relationship between the Romans and the Jews in Jerusalem was not always peaceful. In fact, conflicts were beginning to escalate, and the commander wanted to be sure that this issue did not turn into a full-fledged uprising. So he's going to as Barney says, nip it. he's going to nip it in the bud. He's going to make sure it's not able to go any further. So he takes Paul to Caesarea or under cover of night. And then in verses 26 to 30, we see that this Roman commander's name was Claudius Lysias, who has come into picture several times over the last few chapters. He wrote a note to Felix the governor to explain the situation. Felix was ruling, he was the governor of Judea, ruling in Caesarea. Uh, He was known to be cruel. He was known to be somewhat inept. Um, And this instance actually took place near the end of his reign. This was probably around 58 uh, A.D. So the soldiers safely deliver Paul to Felix in Caesarea, and he's now in his hands. Okay, here's a question for us to consider. Paul had just been given a clear promise from Jesus that he was going to get him to Rome. So that clearly implied that this conspiracy that his nephew overheard would not be successful. Was it a lack of faith on Paul's part to have the nephew warn the Roman commander about this conspiracy? Should he have just thanked his nephew and said, never mind, I'm sure God's going to take care of this? No, Paul did the right thing. God in his providence had promised Paul that he would take care of him. And God in his providence calls Paul's nephew to overhear the evil plan so that the conspiracy could be stopped. So in faith, Paul made sure that the commander found out about the information. This reminds me of a, a story that I remember reading years ago, and I could, couldn't point it to you again, point you to it right now, but it's from the Civil War. And it's speaking, it, it, was, it was a Confederate chaplain who was teaching, preaching to some soldiers. And he was teaching about this very subject. He was talking about God's providential care for them, that God was watching over them. Well, during the meeting, they began to be fired on by the Union troops. Well, the chaplain exhorted the soldiers to take cover. Some of the soldiers asked him, well, if God's providentially watching over us, why should we be taking cover from enemy fire? He said, yes, God is providentially watching over us. He also providentially provided rocks and trees 
right here, and you need to get behind them. God's word, for example, also tells us that he has numbered our days. Every one of us in here, there is a particular number of days that we're going to live in this world. That's already been decreed. We don't know what it is. You don't know what it is. But that doesn't mean that you should stop looking both ways when you cross the street. You're still responsible. That doesn't mean that you don't take medicine when you get sick. God has providentially numbered our days, but he's also providentially provided various means for us to take advantage of. And in faith, we're to do that. Another application here, God has promised us as Christians that he has begun that work of salvation in us and he will perfect it. He will complete it to the very end. But that doesn't mean you can ignore the Lord. It means that we should take advantage of worshiping together at the church. We should hear the word of the Lord taught. We should pray. We should seek the Lord. We should give time to reading and applying the scriptures. We should give effort to dealing with temptations. You don't just say, well, I'm trusting. You say he started the work, he's going to finish it. Well, but he's given you all these means that we're supposed to use in the process. That's a major aspect of trusting him. So praise God that he is truly purposefully providing for and governing our world, including us. So may that encourage us to walk out our Christian life in faith and obedience. Lord, we want to thank you again for your word. We thank you for the doctrines of the faith that are so helpful and so important to us. Again, there are so many things we don't understand, so many things that uh, we, have a, we have some understanding, but we know there's, there's more to it that we are not fully privy to at this point. But we do thank you that you've allowed us to know you. You have revealed yourself to us so we can know you and we can trust you. And part of trusting you is I don't fully understand everything that's going on or even fully understand why it's happening. But I trust my God is good. I trust my God is wise. Lord, I thank you for the fact that you are always working in our lives from every possible angle. Thank you. Just like John Flavel said, it's really impossible for anything to turn out affecting us in a bad way because of God providentially watching over each one of his, his, his people. Doesn't mean it's not going to be hard. Doesn't mean it's not going to break our hearts sometimes. But he is always there with us. Lord, help us to be strong in our faith and trusting you. If you're one who's never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I would invite you to do that. A prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I am a sinner. I know that there is sin in me. I know I've done wrong in so many ways. But I thank you that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners like me. And I want to receive him as my Savior. And I want to commit my life to him as the Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note on your tear-off from your bulletin. Or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website.